If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One of the dangers about the Second World War is it's become the sort of dominant reference point for every single conflict and uh, crisis today. People automatically sort of seek, look backwards to try to understand the future. That was Anthony Beaver talking about the legacy of the Battle of the Bulge. The whole sky was ablaze and they heard and saw the planes coming overhead. At that point, they were actually shouting at the planes to come and bomb them because they wanted to die rather than be starved and worked to death in the way that they were being treated. And that was Wendy Holden, author of a new book about some remarkable Holocaust survivors. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our final podcast of May 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Now, in last week's episode, we said that this week we would be exploring the new Civil War Centre. Well, in a slight change of plan, we're going to be broadcasting that episode next week, while this time we're focusing on the Second World War. Our first interview is with Anthony Beaver, one of the world's best-known military historians, whose books include Stalingrad, Berlin, and a recent history of the Second World War. His newest book covers the 1944 Ardennes Offensive, Hitler's final attempt to shift the conflict in his favour that is popularly known as the Battle of the Bulge. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, met up with Anthony recently to find out more and started by asking him what he felt Hitler hoped to achieve through the offensive. Hitler had an obsessive idea that somehow, despite reality on the Eastern Front and the Western Front, that somehow he could sort of turn things round. But what one does realise here, uh, and I think this is quite an important point, is the failure on the intelligence side is largely because when one tries to put oneself in one's opponent's shoes, um, one's actually making a slight mistake. 
because you're still trying to see things from the opponent's point of view, but with your mentality, with your sort of calculations on how you would do things in that particular position. Now, what they assumed was that uh, Rundstedt was in command, and so they assumed that Rundstedt being a um, logical commander uh, would not waste his troops by charging out into the open in a major attack, which could be, which would actually play into American strengths of air power and um, tank power and so forth, uh, even on a, an undefended part of the front. Uh, but of course it wasn't uh, Rundstedt, it was entirely Hitler. Uh, and we've always made the mistake, we did with Saddam Hussein, we've always made the mistake with dictators of um, putting ourselves in our shoes, but actually not putting ourselves in their minds, yeah. in their mindset. Uh, and this was the case very much with Hitler. And Hitler's mindset in this stage was, as I was saying, trying to turn around the war at the last moment, um, snatching uh, victory from the jaws of defeat, uh, which of course was actually pretty well impossible. In fact, was impossible, I think. But his idea was to uh, break through in the Ardennes, where he, the Germans had broken through several times before, uh, 1817, 1914, 1940, um, and yet again, and uh, not go north because, of course, he felt that the American forces around Arnhem, around, sorry, around Antwerp, around Aachen, all these A's, <laughs> around Aachen were so strong that that would be a major mistake. So that's why they were ordered to charge uh, due west, uh, cross the Meuse, and then swing north to go up to Brussels and Antwerp, because he felt that if he could seize Antwerp, which was, of course, the major port for all supplies coming in, and therefore also cut off the British and the Canadians, um, he might knock one of them, at least the Canadians, out of the war, and perhaps even the British, if he could force them into a Dunkirk. Well, I mean, his generals knew perfectly well that this was simply impossible, even if they did get all the way to Antwerp, uh, which was, they thought, highly unlikely, um, they would never be able to defend the corridor, uh, going all that particular way. Um, so it was not a, uh, a practical solution. I mean, both Manteuffel, uh, Myrtle and um, Rundstedt all believed that they could go for a little slam, a smaller option, which was just basically to crush the American troops within the bend of the Meuse. Um, but even that was not really going to, uh, going to work. They assumed that the Americans would be so shaken uh, by the shock and awe, if you like, of well, brutality, because Hitler demanded it on the 12th of December, four days before the attack. Uh, he felt that their one chance of making this great breakthrough was to so shake uh, the Americans, uh, troops who he despised and actually underestimated. Um, and um, then the, the collapse would be so sudden that they would be able to get through. Uh, but he had underestimated a the fighting qualities of not all the American troops, but some of the American troops, anywhere, um, a sufficient number to slow up his forces. He'd also underestimated the difficulties of the terrain and the roads. And as a result, of course, they therefore lost that momentum and they needed that momentum if they were going to achieve um, that form of collapse. Um, and they would totally underestimated the ability of the Americans to react. Uh, both in terms of decision-making, but also in logistic terms of bringing in the reinforcements. Mm. I mean, to what extent did the offensive take the Allies by surprise? Totally. Mm. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Absolutely, completely. Um, 
that they should have had. I mean, there were numbers of warnings, but once again, it shows that other uh, great failing in the intelligence world uh, is you tend to eliminate things which don't fit in with your own set ideas. What are the reasons that you think this took the Allies so much by surprise? What factors do you think contributed to that most? Um, the, the overall assumption that the Germans were beaten and right. that they could not get together that sort of force to launch a major strategic counteroffensive. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, one can understand why they chose the Western Front rather than the Eastern Front or the Italian Front. And the West on the Eastern Front, you know, even those uh, 22 divisions in the first wave would have been completely suppressed by the uh, sheer number of uh, Soviet troops. Um, but also, it seemed mad um, to hurl your best troops out into the open, um, even on an undefended front, where it's going to be easier for the Americans to destroy them um, in the longer, or in the medium term, at any rate. Um, and I think that it's uh, a very important part of the war, which, of course, Soviet and Russian historians refuse to acknowledge, um, that by grinding down and uh, defeating the armoured corps, basically the panzer arm of the German army uh, in the Ardennes, um, that was what broke the back of the Wehrmacht, the finally broke the back of the Wehrmacht, and enabled the uh, Soviet armies to advance so rapidly in January 1945. Oh, um, yeah. And um, you know, as I say, Russian historians um, are rather reluctant to accept that. Um, it's like they undermines it. And very striking, of course, that uh, Stalin, and even to this day, some um, Russians uh, try to pretend that um, they advanced the date of that period to save the Americans in the Ardennes. That's absolute rubbish. I mean, um, they advanced it for a very specific reason because of the uh, meteorological reasons, because uh, they knew a thaw was coming later in the month. Um, but also, they, um, the whole of the then the German advance had been stopped uh, basically Christmas Day and certainly by Boxing Day um, and by early January you know the fight back had really started and the, the bulge was being crushed uh, so there was absolutely no question of the Russians um, saving saving the Americans bacon uh, in the Ardennes. Again we have touched on this but it'd be nice to talk about how, how important you think the weather was in the days up until Christmas. Well one has to remember that two-thirds of the battle were fought in darkness. Um, you know, one forgets quite how, as one gets into spring now and all the rest of it, uh, one forgets quite how dark the winter is. And certainly in the Ardennes, um, during that particular period in early December, and the middle of December, um, it was the shortest period of the year. And so, I mean, basically, uh, most of those guys were facing, facing sort of, you know, um, uh, 16, 17, 18-hour nights. Yeah. Um, so during the day you're praying for nightfall and of course during the night you're just praying for dawn. Yeah. Um, so it was, the, the conditions were pretty appalling. I mean, first of all there was the mud, um, there was the, even, even those who had spare pairs of socks, you know, the difficulty of actually drying your feet and changing them, um, there was always the danger of trench foot, um, there were the mud and the water 
the screams. I mean, the whole place is completely waterlogged. Um, even Patton's troops in the Third Army advancing from the south, they were having to cross rivers the whole time. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine in December you're crossing rivers. I mean, um, digging, tre- digging, digging foxholes, always on the edge of woods or into woods or whatever, yeah. uh, with roots and stones and so forth. I mean, you start to sweat like a pig in a moment. Um, and then that freezes on you. Mm-hmm. Um, no, the conditions were um, frightful. Um, and we know that uh, you know, the temperature was dropping to close to minus 25 at times. Um, which they were simply really not equipped for. Mm. So there were many cases of uh, frostbite. Um, the stress of the fighting was also such that um, sometimes up to 20% or even more of the casualties, um, the, the overall casualties, were, um, I, well, in fact, more than 20% were so-called non-battle casualties. So that, that usually boiled down to either sort of trench foot or frostbite. Um, or psychological collapse Mm -hmm. and the strain was phenomenal and you know um, one has to understand you can never exactly predict who's going to hold up better than others but there are indications Um, and since you know very few of us have ever been through anything like that it's very very hard to judge or to make any moral judgments on people who did collapse in this way. I mean how, how tough was fighting on both sides? I think tough, fighting was very tough, it was extremely savage, um, the killing of prisoners um, was relentless on both sides, um, I'm not sure how the Americans are going to um, react to the book, um, it's, it's going to be yeah. quite interesting, um, because I'm afraid to say, on the whole, certainly in the past, I think historians tend to be much more honest now, military historians tend to be much more honest now, but in the past, um, historians always tended to either downplay, overlook, or ignore deliberately uh, the killing of prisoners, especially by their own side, whether in the First World War. Um, and the killing of prisoners in, in, the, uh, in the Ardennes was really, I think, very sho- was shocking, actually, um, on both sides. But obviously, it started with the Germans and the uh, Piperkampfgruppe, Hansfeld, uh, Malmedy, Bourbonnais, Malmedy, and so forth, Stavolo. Um, but the Americans suddenly didn't hang back, and I think it was quite shocking when you get sort of uh, people like the admirable Forrest Pope, who was one of the um, official historians, um, who sort of acknowledged later, you know, that officers were saying to them, oh, well, we just keep a, keep a couple of samples and just shoot all the other prisoners. Um, no American is really, um, I don't think any American historian, uh, any one Dutch historian has actually brought it out before, has actually written about the Americans' own massacre, which is at Chernoigny on the 1st of January, uh, when they shot over more than 60 um, prisoners. It was different in the sense that it was sheer bloody-mindedness, a green, uh, inexperienced division who'd had an appalling thing. Uh, an appalling experience um, was on sort of slightly cracking up at the time. Um, that was not the same as the cold bloodied cruelty of the first SS Panzer Division, Leibstand uh, that of Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are, I'm not trying to sort of immediately put it into the same category because there are sort of, sort of certain differences. Um, but the fact that, you know, that it was actually mentioned in Patton's diary. Uh, but no American historians followed it up. I find that slightly surprising. As we head into the 1st of January, the kind of starting uh, kind of weeks of that year, what, what factors do you think really led to 
the defeat? Do you think it was for the like, uh, supply lines? Do you think that was a major consideration in terms of things? It was an accumulation, obviously, in all these cases. I mean, obviously, supplies made um, uh, uh, a big difference. I mean, ammunition wasn't getting through. Certainly, food wasn't getting through. I mean, there were virtually most of the Germans were having to live off the land. I mean, basically, looting farmhouses and so forth. Uh, or, in many cases, what they captured from the Americans. But, of course, by the 1st of January, they weren't capturing any more from the Americans because they weren't advancing anymore. Yeah. Uh, that had finished really on Christmas Day. Um, that was sort of the furthest point really of their advance. So from then on, then on, their American supplies were liable to run out very rapidly. Mm. Um, shortages of fuel, as we know, and so forth. But basically, it was the um, failure to break through as quickly as they needed to, if they were actually going to break through, um, of keeping up that momentum of attack. It was the uh, rapidity of the American response. The ability that through Comset, through the Red Ball Express, as it had been called, had been able to bring in that number of reinforcements, you know, 90,000 men just in sort of just over 24 hours. I mean, no other army in the world would have achieved that. I'm not just talking because they had the trucks, but also because of the organization. Yeah. And although Comzed was um, a despicable organization in many ways, the ghastly General Lee at its head, um, my God, it did rise to the occasion on, uh, when, it was, when it was really needed there. I know that, was, that, that, it must be said, was uh, impressive. Um, no, I mean, the American cornucopia, the rapidity of decision-making, um, quite often, th this is where the Americans actually were always better than the British. Um, the British were never very good and still aren't at um, focusing or prioritizing. The Germans and the Americans are always better than the British at prioritizing. Um, and, you know, the Americans, okay, they had the wealth and resources and that sort of huge military cornucopia, but, you know, they didn't think twice about uh, bulldozing trucks off the road or whatever it might be uh, to achieve what was necessary. The British, having always rather fought a poor man's war, um, were always reluctant uh, to do anything too radical in that particular way. Mm. How, how brutal was the fighting in the Ardennes compared to that of the Eastern Front, for instance? Um, the, the massacres of civilians were not obviously on the same level as on the Eastern Front, uh, but they were certainly far worse than anything we'd seen up to then on the Western Front. Uh, the mentality had arrived from the Eastern Front. One has to remember that most of those SS Panzer divisions, apart from Normandy, um, had been on the Eastern Front for most of the war. And so their mentality was geared to that form of totally pitiless fighting. Yeah. Um, the, um, the savagery, uh, when I say the savagery, I mean, basically, if you could call it savagery, you could call it inhumanity. Um, I mean, Hitler had ordered his troops to put aside all scruples uh, in that particular way. So, I mean, they were prepared to break international law by the use of enemy uniforms and uh, uh, those sort of things. Um, they were prepared to do anything to win. Um, and once the Americans realized quite how um, vicious an enemy they were up against. Um, that's why I think they, were, they fought back in the way that they um, did, which was um, equally unscrupulous. 
Um, there's always going to be a case, certainly in the Second World War, one sees it the way that uh, armoured troops um, are always going to kill more prisoners because they simply haven't got the facilities to take them along. And it's easier just to gun them down, um, unless they've got armoured infantry with them. Um, but then who wants to uh, waste, when they're probably short of men already, you know, uh, a platoon or a, even just a section uh, or a squad in American terms, um, to escort the prisoners back. So, you know, there's, there's, there's that. There's the killing of prisoners for, should we say, pragmatic uh, reasons, uh, which is going to happen anyway in, in warfare and was already a feature of uh, the Eastern Front. Uh, so that was very much brought in there. Um, but then there was the cycle of revenge. And once that had started... Um, it was uh, vicious on both sides. Um, and finally, what new impression would you like readers to take away from this book, this whole operation? Is there any kind of change in perspective you'd like? Well, the obvious ones, the obvious ones in a way, um, certainly what I was saying earlier about trying to understand the mentality of dictators, we always tend to get it wrong. Um, that's why we got the intelligence wrong there. Um, we always tend, within, in, in terms of trying to work out what's going to happen, we tend to look towards the past. And this is one of the dangers, which is something I always bang on about, I'm afraid. But, um, um, you know, the, one of the dangers about the Second World War is it's become the sort of dominant reference point for every single conflict and uh, crisis today. People automatically sort of seek, look backwards to try to understand the future uh, and when things are very, very confusing. And let's face it, you know, international relations, particularly today in the global world, it's more like a pinball machine with things bouncing off in different directions. Uh, and it's almost impossible to predict. So people do tend to look towards the past. And even Churchill made that astonishing mistake, I think, of sort of saying, hey, we need to learn history so we can understand the future. Well, that's absolutely rubbish. I'm never going to get to learn the future uh, about it. Um, the trouble is, we, it's not so much that we don't learn from history, we learn the wrong things from history. Uh, I mean, Bismarck famously said, made that sort of remark about sort of the only thing we learn from history is that nobody learns from history. Um, it's not quite right, it's we learn the wrong things uh, because we try to make superficial parallels um, with what we're facing up to today. Um, so I always try to sort of, you know, try to flag up this thing, for God's sake, you know, don't, don't, don't try to think that uh, things are going to be like the Second World War today. Um, partly because warfare has changed. <laughs> um, the world order has changed. Um, you know, we're, thank God we're not living in a world which is sort of polarised, um, artificially polarised, say, between two extremes of, say, fascism and communism or anything like that. Um, so we cannot say uh, or try to fit things into the mould of the Second World War, um, which is actually a very good reason for studying the Second World War. So uh, one can spot the artificial arguments which are suddenly pushed forward, sometimes pushed forward by uh, the media, it must be said, and um, above all politicians. That was Anthony Beaver. His book, entitled Ardennes 1944, Hitler's Last Gamble, is out now in the UK, published by Viking. In the US, it will be published in November, also by Viking. And you can read more from Matt and Anthony in our June issue, which is on sale now. Also in the magazine, you'll find articles on Anne Boleyn, Waterloo, King John and Victorian public schools, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue now in all good news agents and digitally. And now it's time for a short advertisement break. From ancient Rome to the Tudor court, revolutionary Paris to the Second World War, 
Discover the best historical fiction and non-fiction at H for History. Visit us today for exclusive author features, first chapter previews, podcasts and audio excerpts, book trailers, giveaways and much more. Sign up now to receive our regular newsletter at www.hforhistory.co.uk This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane. Researchers looking for the remains of Reading Abbey may be on the cusp of discovering the sarcophagus of its founder, Henry I. A search for the remains of Henry I's so-called Lost Abbey could confirm the whereabouts of the 12th century king's sarcophagus and, in parallels with the recent search for Richard III, it's possible that it could be located beneath what is now a car park. In an exclusive interview with BBC History magazine, Philippa Langley, well known for leading the search for Richard III's remains in Leicester, said, There is believed to be a pristine Cluniac Abbey layout buried beneath the ground at Reading. What's really exciting is that we know that Henry was buried in front of the high altar. The thinking in Reading is that this burial spot is located beneath a school. If the abbey is larger, it could be situated underneath either what is today a playground or a car park. That option is considered less likely, but if Henry's tomb is beneath the car park, that will be very interesting. To find out more, visit historyextra.com. In other news, researchers have found what they believe to be the oldest tea in Britain. The dried green tea was acquired in China around the year 1700 by James Cunningham, a surgeon working on board a ship with the East India Company. He subsequently gave it as a gift to the famous physician and collector of curiosities, Hans Sloane. At the time, tea was considered an exotic and fashionable pleasure. Labelled a sort of tea from China, the sample was bequeathed by Sloane to the British Museum and later transferred to the Natural History Museum, where it was stored within the botanical collections.
the tea remained unnoticed until a recent study on vegetable substances by museum researchers. Historians from Queen Mary University of London subsequently identified the sample significance as the oldest physical remnant of the nation's favourite drink. Researcher Dr Richard Coulton said, What makes this discovery so fascinating is that it captures the very moment at which tea was about to lay claim to a mass market in Britain. Meanwhile, a hoard of Roman gold coins found in St Albans has been bought by one of the city's museums for nearly £100,000. The stash was found on private land in October 2012 by a man using a metal detector. The find is believed to be one of the largest Roman gold coin hoards buried in the UK, BBC News reports. The 159 coins date from the final years of Roman rule in Britain in the 4th century and will go on display at Verulanium Museum from mid-September. Curator David Thorold said, During the Roman occupation of Britain, people buried coins for two reasons, either as a sacrifice to their gods or as a form of secure storage with the aim of later recovery. Thanks for that, Emma. And before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are now on sale for our two history weekends this autumn. The events are taking place at Malmesbury, Wiltshire from the 15th to 18th of October and in York from the 25th to 27th of September. Full details and tickets are now available at historyweekend.com and as always, BBC History magazine subscribers will get a discount on ticket prices. Our second guest this week is Wendy Holden. Wendy is a best-selling author and journalist who has written several works of history. Her new book is Born Survivors, which tells the incredible story of three women who not only survived the Holocaust, but also became pregnant during those terrible years. Amazingly, their babies survived this ordeal and have all recently celebrated their 70th birthdays. I spoke to Wendy last month to discover more about these women's experiences and I began by asking her how she first became acquainted with their tales. It was a fluke, really. Um, I love reading about history and the Holocaust, but uh, this wasn't actually a specific uh, book about that. It was a late night uh, reading session on my iPad. I came across an obituary of a woman uh, who died in Toronto, and she had been in Auschwitz, and she'd given birth to a baby there that had died. And I remember thinking, gosh, I've read an awful lot about the Holocaust, but I've never read anything about babies born in the Holocaust, and there must have been loads of them. I mean, there were millions and millions of people through the various camps and I wonder if anything's been written about them. So I had a quick look on Amazon and I had a quick look online and I couldn't really find anything anywhere that was published and in the course of that uh, search online I discovered um, Eva Clark and Eva Clark was born in a concentration camp. And when I read about her story and her mother's story, I was deeply moved. And at that point, I think I would have jumped on a plane and gone anywhere in the world to interview her. I thought it was the most incredible story and one that should be told in a book. But to my very great surprise and delight, it turned out that she lived in Cambridge, one hour from where I live in Suffolk. Um, So I arranged to go and see her, spent a very emotional day with her as she told me her story. And at the end of my day with her, I asked if she would do me the honour of letting me write 
write her story and she touched my arm and said, I've been waiting 70 years. Because of course she and all of the babies then are uh, 70 uh, this month in April. I thought her story was unique, but she told me she thought so too until five years ago when she happened upon two other babies whose mothers had gone through exactly the same experience as her mother and who also had given birth to babies who had survived. And they were all single children. The mothers never had other children. They came upon each other by chance at the 65th anniversary of the liberation of the camp where they were finally liberated. And they have since become what they call siblings of the heart. Going back just to to the beginning of the story, how did their three mothers actually end up in Auschwitz in the first place? They all had very uh, different lives before the war. One was born in uh, Czechoslovakia, one was in, uh, it was also then Czechoslovakia, later Slovakia. So one was near Prague, one was in Bratislava, and one was in Poland. And they had very happy lives. They were Jewish, but non-observant. They were wealthy, they were educated, they were happy. They all married young, very happily, through choice, not, uh, you know, by an arranged marriage. And then uh, Hitler arrived in their lives and everything changed. And individually, they had very different experiences. Uh, Eva's mother, Anka, ended up being sent to Terezin in the Czech Republic, which was what they called Hitler's showcase camp. And she stayed there for three and a half years until she and her husband were sent to Auschwitz. Priska in Bratislava managed to remain in Bratislava, virtually in hiding until the end, almost the end of the war. And then she and her husband were rounded up and sent to Auschwitz. And Rachel in Poland went through both the Warsaw Ghetto and then the Wuj Ghetto, uh, both of which were notoriously terrible. Um, and she went through those with her three sisters. And then she and her entire family, including her three sisters, were sent to Auschwitz. And then they all arrived in Auschwitz late summer, early September of 1944 when Dr. Mengele was in charge and at that point they were looking for young healthy women for slave labour and it was their very great fortune that they were selected to go to slave labour rather than be sent straight to the gas chambers as almost all of their families were. Living in this in this time and it's a particularly perilous time for Jews in Europe do we know whether they they decided to become pregnant and if they did what were their what was their thinking behind that? Anka in Terezin absolutely decided to be pregnant. She got pregnant first actually in Terezin and lost a baby. And then she got pregnant again. And her view was, as was very common at the time, that with various parts of Europe being liberated by the Allies uh, towards the end of 1944, it was only a matter of time before the war would be over and that they were young and healthy and happy and that they should start a family as soon as possible. Uh, Priska in Bratislava with her husband Tibor lost three babies in, in the attempt before she was finally pregnant with the baby that she ended up having. And Rachel uh, in Poland, I think that was probably the only one that wasn't exactly planned but which happened anyway because at that point they were living in dire conditions in the ghetto and I think they must have sought comfort whichever way they could. Clearly it's hard enough being in a Nazi death camp or concentration camp anyway but to be there pregnant I mean how difficult must have that have been for these three women? 
it doesn't really bear thinking about. They were so frightened of being discovered because they knew that, especially when Mengele lined each of them up, um, they were all lined up and having been shaved and stripped of all their clothing, standing naked in the parade ground in Auschwitz-Birkenau. They were all scrutinized by Dr. Joseph Mengele, who was known as the Angel of Death. He asked them all if they were pregnant, and in some instances he squeezed their breasts very hard to see if they produced any milk. They all replied no, even though they were all approximately two months pregnant, because they felt instinctively they were in the presence of danger. And from there on, their lives took on a hellish quality with uh, the slave labor camp they were sent to in Freiburg in Saxony, Germany, where they were thrown very baggy clothing and wooden clogs. They were put on a starvation diet, which was essentially water. It was uh, Ertzatz coffee for breakfast uh, with a little piece of black bread, uh, what they laughingly called soup for lunch, which was coloured water, really, with a might have a small piece of onion or potato in it, and coffee or water in the evening. So they lost massive amounts of weight. They were wearing massively oversized, baggy, inappropriate clothing that had just been handed to them randomly in Auschwitz, which they then had to wear the same dresses for seven months uh, with no washing facilities. And they were given extremely hard work to do. They had to hold heavy riveting machines and make aircraft parts for what the Nazis hoped would be the next jet aircraft. And they knew that if they were discovered, their pregnancies were discovered, they would almost certainly be sent back to Auschwitz. And that to them seemed Dante's Inferno, they called it the hell on earth. They didn't want to go back there. So they didn't tell anybody that they're pregnant, not even their closest friends. And Rachel, who had her three sisters, with her and slept with one of them for seven months of her pregnancy didn't even tell her sister and the first anybody knew that any of them were pregnant was when they each gave birth over a period of three weeks I mean that's just absolutely incredible so was it just because they were so emaciated anyway that it was less obvious they went down, each of them went down to under 70 pounds, which is uh, under five stone. Anka described it very well. She said, you became an insect. You became like an ant. You kept your head down. You covered yourself up. You cowered in front of the SS guards. You did anything not to get noticed. If you tripped up, you might get noticed and randomly beaten or randomly shot, or you might hurt yourself and injure yourself in such a way that you wouldn't recover because their skin was breaking down. They had no hair. They were very malnourished. They had sores. They had terrible bites from the light um, in the barracks where they were thrown. And their feet were incredibly sore and bleeding and full of pus because of the wooden clogs. And they had to trudge through what was the worst winter in 15 years in Europe. They had to trudge through snow and ice in this terrible flimsy clothing and these horrible wooden clogs. So they, the whole sky was ablaze and they heard and saw the planes coming overhead. At that point, they were actually shouting at the planes to come and bomb them because they wanted to die rather than be starved and worked to death in the way that they were being treated through that hour. And so they would hardly have had any swollen bellies at all. And nobody really noticed anything. They were just, you know, hiding themselves constantly. I mean, it also seems incredible that these pregnancies would have gone, gone to term considering the ravages on, on their bodies. It must yes. be very dangerous for the fetuses, all this as well. 
Incredible. I mean, it's it, when you think about all the possibilities and all the different things that could have happened. And what was even more incredible is that all three mothers had had a little milk to give their babies when the babies were born. And I interviewed a midwife about that, and she explained to me that when uh, malnourished mothers give birth to babies, they do produce um, milk with quite a good. Um, nutritional content, which is extraordinary. But what that does is it deprives the mother of pretty much ev all the calcium in her body. And the mothers all suffered later on from calcium deficiency. Rachel lost all her teeth and had brittle bones. And they did have, uh, have health problems because of that. So what kind of circumstances were there when they actually had the babies? Where were they born and, and, and how on earth could you give birth to someone in a, in a camp? Uh, they had just all of them recently watched Dresden burn. They weren't, weren't very far from Dresden and when Dresden was bombed in February 1944 uh, they, the whole sky was ablaze and they heard and saw the planes coming overhead. At that point they were actually shouting at the planes to come and bomb them because they wanted to die rather than be starved and worked to death in the way that they were being uh, treated. Then it was clear that that wasn't going to happen and uh, Prisca suddenly gave birth. Her waters broke in the factory and she was placed on a plank on a table in the factory and gave birth as the Nazi guards joked and leered and watched and took bets on whether it would be a boy or a girl. Uh, the following day, the camp was evacuated because they were told to get rid of the evidence, basically, and the idea was to herd the 1,000 women that were left um, onto a train and send them to Buchenwald, which where they would have almost certainly been gassed. So Priska with baby Hannah, uh, who was under three pounds, she placed her in the side her filthy dress and was put onto a train along with these uh, 1,000 women and sent south. Um, it should have just taken a day or two to get there, but because the Allies uh, were bombing the lines and they were getting closer and closer and Buchenwald was actually liberated two days later the short train journey without food or water lasted 17 days uh, rachel gave birth to mark uh, 10 days into that journey in an open coal wagon during a rainstorm at one point she had no idea whether or not she herself was going to survive and she certainly didn't believe her child would she thought she was going to have to bite through the umbilical cord but somebody found a rusty razor blade and she cut through it and she also stuffed him inside her dress and lay with him surrounded by dying women and in fact some dead women um, fully expecting not to make it and then as their train trundled inexorably on they were treated kindly by one town in the Czech Republic where people did rally and make them some food and make sure that they got it, which saved some of them. But unfortunately, they couldn't keep them there and the train trundled on until it got to Mauthausen in Austria, in the upper Austria, uh, opposite the Alps and Salzburg in a perversely beautiful setting. And that was only one of two grade three concentration camps in the Nazi system. And it was known as the bone grinder. And nobody who went to Mauthausen was ever expected to walk out of there alive and it was when they reached Mauthausen and Eva's mother Anka saw the name of the train station that her waters broke and she gave birth on a cart full of dead and dying women at the gates of the camp. Once they'd had their babies did this give them any kind of added impetus to survive? Did it change their attitude about wanting to carry on? I think they had, to a certain extent, each of them been in denial about being pregnant. Um, and if they did think about it, then they were 
taking each hour at a time anyway and just waiting to see if they survive, never mind their child. The harsh reality of suddenly having a tiny, bawling infant uh, in your arms or laid against your filthy uh, breast uh, while you're having to deal with everything else that's going around you and the idea that you yourself could be killed at any moment must have been such a terrible shock because suddenly this child was out and unprotected and of course uh, a mother's devotion to a child is is legendary and, and uh, they did indeed rally around their, their babies and do all they could to save them to the point that at one point when they reached Mauthausen, Rachel and Mark had been sent off to the gas chamber um, but the gas had run out, so they were marched off to a barracks to be left to either starve to death or be eaten by the lice. And Priska, uh, her baby Hannah, was discovered while they were waiting to be sent somewhere, either to the gas chambers or to the barracks. And the guards uh, quite literally had a tug of war with this tiny baby, and Priska fought like a tiger to hold on to her child. And it was only saved when a a, a, woman, a female capo, a, a prisoner guard, intervened and uh, asked if she could hold and see the baby uh, for a while because she said she hadn't seen a baby in six years. They had relied on so much luck, really, this, this whole period. So would I be right to say that almost every other baby born in the camps would have died? These three are very unusual. They are extremely unusual. There were nine pregnancies that we know of in the uh, fr from the women of Freiburg, the women who were in the slave labour camp. We know that there were nine pregnancies, and these are the only three that survived that we are aware of. We know that um, two women were sent back to Auschwitz, um, having been uh, discovered pregnant, and we know from uh, records kept at Auschwitz and from test witness testimony that if a woman was sent back to Auschwitz, and particularly if she came back under the uh, scrutiny of Dr. Mengele, she would be treated appallingly. In fact, one woman, uh, he was so angry that uh, she'd slipped through the net that uh, when she came back, he made her have her, her baby and then he uh, he strapped her to the bed with her baby next to her so that her baby would starve to death, which which took several days. How did they come eventually come to be liberated then? They arrived in Mauthausen on April 29. The gas had run out on April 28 because so many people had been sent there. There were approximately 40,000 people uh, in the camp, or possibly more at that point, uh, but the Germans had decided that it was time to flee, so they were running around and burning documents, and eventually they fled on or about uh, the 2nd of May, and then there was three days of, of inactivity, no food, no water, nothing at all, nobody caring for anybody and just trying to survive, and of course thousands died during that period. And then on May the 5th, uh, the Americans uh, came through the gates and it was a small reconnaissance squad. They weren't expecting to find anything like that at all. They had actually been sent ahead in a couple of vehicles to look at the safety of bridges uh, before the uh, uh, General Patton's Third Army came through and a Red Cross doctor flagged them down and begged them to go with him up to the camp and uh, when they arrived they simply couldn't believe what they what they saw. Uh, they'd, they'd never experienced anything like it. They'd, they'd heard about concentration camps but they hadn't seen anything and they were utterly shocked and and of course once they arrived there was complete uh, carnage and mayhem the the few guards that were left were, were killed by the prisoners that 
were still able to stand and you know do do things that there was a there was a raid on the stores and uh, it became suddenly a, a war zone and these young american soldiers had to keep order and and try and keep everything together until a, a bigger division could come uh, and then of course the, the the entire american army arrived and they did what they could but uh, at least um a thousand people died within 24 hours of the camp being liberated by the americans through a combination of of starvation and shock and also actually from being fed uh, they, they'd been starved for so long and the american soldiers uh, didn't know any better so they gave them tins of food and chocolate and cigarettes and anything they could think of and unfortunately the, the shock effect of that on the human body was enough to to kill these very weakened individuals and what kind of condition were our three mothers in by the time they were liberated? They were in a very poor condition, very very weak um, and very uh, at high risk of typhus. Typhus raged through the camp and nearly killed uh, Rachel's sister, Sally, actually. And they were very vulnerable to infection and, uh, and disease. But they were lucky. They were cared for to the point that, that they, they managed to survive. Baby Hannah was, uh, was, was probably the most sickly baby and she was taken away by the Americans and operated on immediately because she had so many infected sores on her skin and they used a, a very newfangled drug uh, called penicillin uh, and that managed to save her life and then she was returned to her mother and they each mother stayed in the camp for approximately a month it, it varied depending on their health and where they had to get back to um, before they were allowed to go home and they all individually went back to their separate homes homes and separate countries to hopefully find their husbands and their loved ones, only to discover that all their husbands had been killed by the Nazis and almost all of their families. Did they actually end up back in the countries that they'd lived in earlier or did they, like majority of, of the um, camping mates, end up, say, in America or Israel? Well, to begin with, they all went back to their hometowns because that was all they knew and that's where they thought they would be reunited with their husbands. Rachel and her sisters went back to Poland because their father had told them whatever happened, they should go back there. But they were treated appallingly when they got back. Their home had been taken over, all their belongings were gone and people were... Uh, very unpleasant to them in the streets so they decided to go to Munich which at that point was in the American zone and from Munich they went to America. Priska went back to Bratislava waiting for her husband Tibor who never returned but she never left Bratislava and she stayed there until she died even under communist rule and Anka went back to Prague to wait for her husband to discover that he'd been shot on a death march out of Auschwitz and she ended up another German who'd lost his family in the war and she went to Cardiff and ended up in Cardiff for most of her life and then her daughter Eva moved to Cambridge. How did the, this very traumatic experience, how did that affect these, these women in their later lives? It's extraordinary that they all lived to a ripe old age and uh, were able to keep a positive outlook. Anka, in particular, was a very optimistic uh, person, a sunny personality, and uh, told her daughter, Eva, right from the start, that uh, she'd been born in a concentration camp and that uh, terrible things did happen, but that they should look forward and stay positive. And it was her positive attitude that definitely kept her going through the worst of her war experiences. Rachel who went to America and married a jeweler and ran a jewellery store in Wisconsin was um, very committed to 
making a good career for herself and a good uh, life for her family and earning money and getting her son an education. And that was very important to her to the point that she almost became a little obsessed about it. And that's a common trait in Holocaust survivors that they want to make themselves so financially secure that nothing could ever touch them again and that they feel that they're safe somewhere. So that was very important to her. And she did suffer from terrible nightmares and didn't talk about it very much. So that was awkward. And then Priska in Bratislava was living under communist rule. And, you know, it wasn't the easiest time to be living there in any event. But she was always uh, determined to continue her career as a teacher. And in fact, she became a professor of languages. And she was determined also to make sure that her daughter had the best education. And uh, she went on to get a PhD and, and study biochemistry. Do you think that having had the babies in the camps, did that almost help make the experience a little bit less intolerable for them when they reflected on it because something good had come out of it? I think... Their story is a testament to hope. I mean, it's courage, obviously, great courage um, and hope. But all of them would say that it was down to luck. They they had no time for people who spoke about survivor guilt or who spoke about uh, in any way having felt that they had survived through their own clever use of time or, or their own devices in lots of ways. They absolutely were convinced it was luck. It was luck whether you caught the eye of an SS guard who might just beat you or shoot you for the sake of it. It was luck if you got typhus or if it was luck if you happened to get a piece of potato or a slice of onion in your soup. And all the way through these events that happened to them were they became luckier and luckier in lots of ways because although there were there were times when things could have gone horribly wrong, Anka fell and badly damaged her leg in the slave labour camp and was convinced that she would be deemed useless and then be sent back to Auschwitz or just shot there or you know thrown away in some way. But it was luck that by then the parts had run out for these planes that they were making because the Allies were doing such a great job in bombing the supply lines. And so the work at the factory virtually stopped and that allowed her time to heal so everything that happened you know they, they happened to go into this town in the Czech Republic called Hornibritza which they wouldn't normally the train wouldn't normally have gone through there but Pilsen had been bombed by the Allies so they had to go into this siding for two days and the station master there rallied the whole townspeople and overnight they made 4,000 loaves and they went and fed as many of the prisoners as they could they defied the SS guards and they risked being shot but they insisted that these poor people had to be fed and they also insisted in giving decent burial to the 36 who were thrown off the train there um, uh, because they died overnight that again was great good fortune because getting a piece of bread or getting a, a small bowl of soup when you'd had nothing for a week or 10 days and hardly any water even was enough to sustain them I mean, Anka was given a glass of milk and she said she never liked milk before and she's never liked it since but she called it the nectar of life and she says she's convinced that that's what kept her and her baby alive.
for these three children, how do they feel about about the, the events of their birth? Because obviously they don't remember it, but it clearly has such a huge impact on their mothers. Yes, it's very interesting. They all were aware of it from a very early age. And of course, Mark, whose mother had gone from Poland to Munich and then ultimately to Israel, uh, Mark grew up in a kibbutz uh, with, with surrounded by Holocaust survivors. So for him, it was it, it was nothing nothing unusual. Everybody had a, had a story to tell. Uh, and the legacy of that was, I suppose, that he uh, had an idea that he wanted to uh, kill every German uh, is what he told his mother when he was about 12 years old and his mother was horrified and and told him no they they took away everything if you start to talk like that then they will have also taken away your humanity and you mustn't you mustn't talk that way so they were um, all of them individually raised to uh, believe in forgiveness and to believe in moving on and to believe that there is a brighter better future and uh, to to absolutely uh, embrace tolerance um, but they also individually uh, felt very strongly the mothers and they imparted this to their children that um, people must never forget they they must r- remember what happened and of course being born right at the end of the war during the holocaust these three babies are destined to be probably the last survivors of the Holocaust. And they are the voice of the voiceless, really. And uh, as long as they are able to tell us what happened, then it's our, it's our moral duty to, to listen and, and to remember. What kind of an experience was it for you to actually interview these people who've had such an amazing, amazing in a broad sense, an amazing start to their life? It was an incredible experience. I mean, I was a journalist for 18 years and I spent a lot of my life interviewing people in extreme circumstances. I've written lots of books about remarkable people and remarkable experiences during the wars around the world. So I wasn't new to it, if you like, but uh, this was certainly the most moving book I've ever written uh, and researched. It took me all around the world to talk to people. Mark's aunt, Sally, is still alive in Nashville in Tennessee, and I spent a few days with her uh, and she was extraordinary and she described the train journey and what that was like. I met another lady in Prague called Lisa who came to meet me at my hotel and spent two and a half hours with me and then burst into tears at the end of it. But she told me so much. I felt a great privilege to be able to chronicle these stories while these people were still alive and to uh, to, to be able to put this down in one sort of epic volume, if you like, that encompasses these three lives and tells part of the story of the attempted destruction of Europe's Jews really has been the greatest honour of my life. And I, I feel that in a way, if I never write another book, it would be okay. This will be my legacy. That was Wendy Holden. Born Survivors is out now in the UK, published by Sphere. And in the US, it's published by Harper. Well, so that's pretty much it for this week. But do join us next time when we really will be paying a visit to Britain's new National Civil War Centre. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.